Section 26 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Third Decade, Chapter 3, The Poitiers Campaign, Part 2. The first assault on such a position could be little better than a forlorn hope, but the three hundred enfants perdus were quickly found and headed by Clermont and Dontrain, the two marshals of France, the doomed squadron advanced to dislodge the English archers. The latter withheld their shot till the column had fairly entered the lane and were spurring through it to get at the harrow of bowmen drawn up at its farther end. Then they let fly so thick and fast and at such deadly short range that the narrow passage was choked up with men and horses struggling in the agonies of death, and advance and retreat became alike impossible. While the archers posted at the head of the lane, and the archers who lined the hedge on either side of it, poured in volleys of arrows which no armor could resist upon the writhing masses of fallen horsemen. A few of the most daring or desperate broke through the hedges and reached the open space before the English front in two and threes, but not a man of the column of the marshals got near enough to engage a blow with the enemy. Meantime, the carnage was fearful. Dandrain was unhorsed and taken, and Clermont slain. The rear of this column fell back upon the second battle commanded by the young Duke of Normandy, which now began to open and to waver. This was the moment eagerly expected by the six hundred men in ambush, who now topping the hill which had hitherto concealed them, charged down the slope with irresistible impetus upon the flank of the disordered battalion. Upon this, the lords who had charge of the French king's sons hurried them off the field under the escort of eight hundred mounted men-at-arms. Their departure was taken for flight by the whole division, and was the signal for a general so of qui peut. All these movements, however, had but cleared the field of battle for nobler combatants. The third division, led by the French king and the men-at-arms of the Black Prince, had hitherto been only lookers-on. But when the second battle of the French began to break, Sir John Chandos spoke thus to the prince, "'Sir, the day is ours. Let us mount and advance upon the French king. I know him for a brave knight whose valour will not let him fly.' and he will remain with us, if it please God and St. George. The prince was only too ready to take his share in the strife and danger of the day, and the main strength of the English army, abandoning their sheltering vines and hedges, spurred on into the open plain. The Duke of Athens, now constable of France, encountered them halfway at the head of a splendid troop shouting Montjoie Saint-Denis, to which the English shouted back, St. George for Guienne and charged them at full speed, overthrowing horse and man and slaying the constable and those of his staff who could not save themselves by flight. A like fate befell the German squadron and its three earls, who next threw themselves into the way of the English horse as they made for that part of the field where the king himself had taken his stand. As the prince's column drew near, King John and his guards dismounted, a fatal step, when charged by cavalry in an open plain, and met the shock on foot. 
but the French far outnumbered the attacking column, and the struggle was long and hard fought. King John, on his part, proved himself a good knight, and had a fourth of his people behaved so well, the field would have been his. He stood battle-axe in hand in the thickest of the fight, dealing his blows right and left against his assailants, his little son Philip, crouching close behind him with his arm round his father's waist, warning him against unexpected thrusts. Twice wounded in the face, he was at length beaten down, and de Charny, who bore the oriflamme, was struck dead at his side. Nineteen of his knights were accoutred like himself to deceive the enemy, but he seems to have been recognized, for desperate efforts were made to capture him, and his assailants cried out, Yield, or you are a dead man. To whom should I yield? said the king. Where is my cousin, the Prince of Wales? He is not here, said a broad-shouldered knight who had forced his way through the press, but yield to me, and I will carry you to him. And who are you, said John? My name, replied the knight in pure French, is Denis de Morbec of Artois, but I serve the King of England because I have forfeited all that I possessed in France. I yield to you, said the French king, handing his right-hand glove to the outlawed knight. But the others were by no means disposed to surrender the king and the little prince who never left his father's side, and a struggle ensued in which the royal captives ran the risk of being roughly handled. Meanwhile, the Prince of Wales, who unable to penetrate to the French king, had been raging like a fell and cruel lion in the melee, was carried off exhausted and weary by Sir John Chandos, and compelled to sit down and rest himself and drink a cup of wine. His banner was then hoisted on a neighboring bush as a rallying point for the scattered English knights, who soon gathered round in ever-increasing numbers. The minstrels sounded, the trumpets and clarions blew, and a crimson tent was erected for the night-quarters of the conqueror. As soon as his marshals came up, the prince inquired if anyone had tidings of the king. Nothing certain was the reply, but he must be either killed or prisoner, for he never quitted his post. Then the prince sent in search of him the earls of Warwick and of Suffolk, and these on reaching a rising ground beheld a crowd tumultuously advancing with a captive in the midst of them. The English and the Gascons were disputing the possession of the prisoner, who said to his captors, Gentlemen, gentlemen, I pray you carry me and my son courteously to my cousin the prince, and do not fight about me, for I am a great lord and able to make you all rich. When the English earls saw the tumult, they set spurs to their horses, and riding up, learned from the bystanders that the captive was indeed the king of France, and that no less than ten knights laid claim to him as their lawful prisoner. Then the barons, pushing through the crowd, ordered all men in the prince's name to draw aside on pain of instant death, and dismounting, advanced with profound deference toward the king and conducted him to the prince's tent. The Battle of Poitiers had some points of resemblance and many of difference, as compared with that of Crecy. Both victories were won by a compact little regular force over an enemy with an overwhelming preponderance of numbers, but badly posted, ill-handled, and overconfident. 
In both battles, the plebeian soldier of the class which had been cut to pieces at Hastings, but had won the day at Bannockburn, proved himself once again a match, and more than a match, for the knights and nobles whom chivalry had held invincible by men of low degree. The defeat of Crecy was attributed, and probably attributable, to the sullen and cowardly conduct of the Genoese mercenaries at the commencement of the battle, while at Poitiers the fatal omen of failure in a first attack was given by the picked soldiers of the national army. Again, the latter battle was ended and the victory of the Black Prince secured earlier in the day than the Battle of Crecy began, and that too over an enemy refreshed with sleep and far better cared for than the English. Instead of, as at Crecy, over a force which straggled into the field of battle, wet, hungry, dispirited, and footsore with a long previous march. But the most striking difference between the two battles, and one which went a long way to redeem the defeat of Poitiers, was the heroism of the French king and his bodyguard of nobles. While with all but life and honor lost, they stood at bay on foot against their mounted assailants. Those that were there, says Foissart, behaved themselves so loyally that their heirs to this day are honored for their sake. As for the king himself, it was no empty compliment that the prince paid him as he waited at supper that evening on the royal captive. Dear sir, said he, do not make a poor meal because the Almighty God has not given such an event to the day as you could wish. You have this day gained such high renown for prowess that you have surpassed the best knights on your side, and all on our side who have seen and observed the actions of the day allow and decree you the prize and garland. Of the English army, the Black Prince proved himself to be the first in prowess as in command, and John of Chandos, the Coptal de Bouche, and Lord Audley, with his four squires, won great glory by their valor in deeds of arms, but indeed it might be said of the English at Poitiers, as of the Scotch at Field, groom fought like noble, squire like knight, as fearlessly and well. The next morning the conqueror set out for Bordeaux, leaving the rich city of Poitiers unmolested, for they were already encumbered with spoil and glad to make the best of their way home. As the number of their prisoners exceeded that of their whole army, they agreed to ransom them at once at the price which each set upon himself, and dismissed them on their promise to come to Bordeaux with the money before Christmas. A peace for two years was concluded with Charles, Duke of Normandy, now regent of France in his father's captivity, for the prince had determined to detain King John and carry him to England. He paid two thousand marks to Morbeck, pending the decision of the dispute which still hotly raged as to the claim for the king's capture, and he had also to distribute a sum of one hundred thousand florins among the Gascon lords before their loyalty would permit their sovereign lord and king to be taken out of the country. For, as Foissart says, great rewards and profits are all that a Gascon loves or desires. In those days, a prisoner taken to mercy in battle became the absolute property and chattel of his captor, but when the former was of exalted rank and the latter a simple soldier of fortune, 
the king generally speculated on the ransom of the captive and secured his custody for his own purposes by paying over what seemed a small sum from the royal exchequer, but was, in all probability, a large one relative to the means of the captor. Thus, as we have seen, Sir John Coupland received an annuity of six hundred pounds or nine hundred marks, the mark being worth thirteen shillings fourpence, for the surrender of his captive, the King of Scotland. Whereas King Edward demanded from the Scots ten thousand marks a year for ten years for his release. And in the case of the French king, though it had cost Edward no more than two thousand marks to secure from de Morbeck the possession of the prisoner, he did not scruple to demand for his ransom three million crowns of gold, a sum equivalent to four hundred and fifty thousand pounds sterling. After a stormy passage of eleven days, the prince arrived with his royal prisoners at Sandwich and rode thence to London. On their way they fell in, it is said, with King Edward, who was hunting in a forest through which they had to pass. Whether in levity or in simplicity, Edward invited the captive monarch to join him in the chase, and on his declining this ill-timed offer, assured King John that he was quite at liberty to enjoy himself in hunting or at the river, when and where he pleased, during his stay in England. Then, sounding his horn, he spurred on after his hounds and was lost in the woods. This anecdote is given on the authority of Villani, a contemporary historian but a foreigner, and is in itself antecedently improbable, for Edward, though far from being a perfect character, was rarely found wanting in the tact and delicacy which became a true knight, or, to translate into modern phrase, the instincts of a gentleman. Historians vie with each other in praising the modesty and courtesy of the Black Prince in his treatment of the captive king, but it is difficult altogether to acquit him of affectation and self-consciousness on the occasion of their entry into the city of London, the account of which reads more like that of a Roman triumph than of an English welcome. A thousand citizens in the dress of their respective guilds, and headed by the Lord Mayor, received them at Southwark, and marched back with them in procession to the city. Arches were thrown across the streets, trophies of arms and gold and silver plate were exhibited in the windows, and all, as it was said, in honor of the vanquished king, who took his part in the pageant, mounted on a white war-horse, splendidly caparisoned, while the Prince of Wales rode alongside of him on a little black hackney. They stopped at the Savoy Palace, belonging to the Duke of Lancaster and standing on open ground on the bank of the Thames, for there the king and the young French prince were to reside. They were afterwards removed to Windsor, and thence to Hartford Castle, where King David of Scotland also was a prisoner. End of Section 26